I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we are joined by Naz Al-Khatib, who's the Development Finance Corporation's Deputy Chief of Staff for Policy. Previously, Naz was at the State Department, where he primarily covered Indo-Pacific affairs. Naz, welcome to the show. It is great to be here. Thanks, Zoe. So tell us, how did you originally become interested in foreign policy? You know, at some level, international affairs and foreign policy has always been a part of my life. My parents emigrated from Lebanon during the Civil War when they were students, and we used to visit pretty regularly as a kid. I heard Arabic and French and English in the home. But I think the moment where foreign policy became more of a professional sort of passion and personal passion, really, was 9-11, like it was for so many of us. It was the first moment where I realized that there was a big world out there that people didn't get along in that world. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in small communities in Ohio and Iowa and then in Western Pennsylvania. And my world had been pretty small at, you know, our schools, our homes, friends' homes, you know, the sandbox, that sort of thing. And this, that event, I think, really brought it into focus for me that there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of sort of conflict in the world that I wanted to try to play a part in helping resolve. Maybe I'm too old now to remember, or I was too young then to sort of piece together how it actually developed into a professional passion. I think what I do remember is reading doorstep books, length books on the beach, on family vacations, joining the debate team, that sort of thing. And then I was really fortunate to have the chance in college and then in my master's program and in law school to really formalize that training and that interest, and it sort of took off from there. Your career has kind of snaked through all the various pit stops that Washington has to offer. You know, you've been in the private sector at McKinsey, you've think tanked, you've governmented. How do you think your experiences in the private sector have shaped the way you view your work in the public sector? Well, it's Not to mention an important summer at a law firm with yours truly. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I think back fondly uh, to that summer and to all of those experiences, Grant, that you mentioned in the private sector and the nonprofit sector. You know, I think above all, it's helped me understand that the scope and scale of the challenges we're confronting are really multifaceted. I mean, a challenge like climate change or economic competition or the rise of authoritarianism have so many angles and are so complex that every time you feel like you're getting smart in a certain dimension of it, you realize that there are other dimensions of the problem that require a distinct skill set or set of experiences or way of viewing the world. And that very rarely will one sort of theory or one approach alone be able to get you where you need to go. And I think that's sort of shaped my approach to my career, to my worldview. I mean, to really solve these problems, we have to rely on large, high-functioning, interdisciplinary teams that are working together because there's not going to be a single way to answer these questions or a best way necessarily. Um, And that, you know, bringing in a diverse set of voices, focusing on people and on cultivating talent, focusing on management, on process, on building systems and institutions, in many ways is just as important as the substantive element of the work, because it's the only way to effectively bring together all the different sort of parts of a problem or challenge and build a team that can really solve them. Uh, And that even just that applies to within a team or within government. I also think um, that working across these different spheres has helped deepen my appreciation for partnerships within and outside of government, between government institutions and, and other entities, because good ideas can come from anywhere. And different organizations have different types of levers that you'll need to work on any particular problem. So, you know, when you approach it that way, I think it helps not only get to better answers and sort of broaden 
your aperture on how and where you can find good solutions to these really challenging sort of 21st century challenges that we're facing. It also makes it more visceral in a lot of ways because you realize that these issues touch on people in all walks of life, on your individual life. And that's a good thing because I think our foreign policy really, at the end of the day really is about making people's lives better, whether that's here in the United States or around the world. And that that's at the center of the work that we do professionally, but it's also a really energizing and humbling idea to motivate yourself as you sort of go through your own professional journey, at least from my perspective. You know, I wake up every day knowing that there's so much more to learn individually, uh, so much you can do to be better as an individual, but also as a member of a team. And then so many other ways to connect across different spheres and bring people together in a way that hopefully solves or helps solve some of these challenges over time. So I'll leave it at that. I mean, it's one, it's sort of a broad answer to your question, but I think it's a real source of strength for the United States, our ability to have an inclusive, large and participatory process in our country more broadly. It's also, I think, really important in our foreign policy making. When you look back at those, you know, various pit stops leading you towards this career in government, what are the blind spots? What do you think that you missed before coming into government? Was it like, oh, I really wish I would have stayed at that law firm and really learned at the, you know, at the feet of one Zoe Weinberg? Is it, you know, something else that you were like, oh, I really wish I would have done that or gained that skill? Or is it something that, you know, you get into government and you don't know what you don't know? Well, where you ended that, I think, is a good place to start as a reply. I mean, you always learn something new when you're going through this work. And frankly, anytime you learn something, you realize there's 10 more things that you hadn't interrogated that you could learn more about. You know, for me, each of those career choices sort of came up in a certain time and place with a certain set of personal factors and professional factors. So it's hard to go back and revisit. But I will say one thing that I didn't have the chance to do formally and that I think is always valuable, it's something I'd recommend um, to our, you know, our friends or peer groups, others who are coming through in earlier stages of their career, is to find a way to work on the Hill. You're talking about how to solve a lot of these issues from these different vantage points, whether you know whether it's the private sector or, or whether it's from academia or whether it's from a law firm, et cetera. And... I guess in each of those lanes, which are, you know, narrow in different ways, I would imagine, and I would say also to maybe a certain extent have experienced myself, sometimes a a feeling of frustration, right? That like, if you're doing things from an academic environment or from a think tank, you're like, wow, I'm putting all these great ideas into the world, but I'm not implementing, right? And then when you're in the private sector, you're like, oh, I'm implementing, but I'm not really like participating in the policy conversation. And when you're in government, you know, So I'm curious if you felt that way, but also, do you feel like what you're doing now actually is kind of the combination of all those things where you both are policymaking and doing and sort of contributing to the larger conversation, et cetera? Or do you still feel now like you're maybe missing a piece of yourself that you were able to, you know, really exercise when you were, say, at McKinsey? You know, I think it's a really insightful point that no matter what context you're in, there's some element of the institution of the role that you're in that allows you to sort of flex on certain dimensions or skills that you have. I've tended to find that in almost every case, the sort of strengths of one of those situations are also the weaknesses inverted, right? I mean, you mentioned uh, in an academic setting, you have the opportunity to do deep thinking, provide sort of enormous amounts of research and uh, in your argumentation, talk to a whole range of stakeholders, but then there's the question of whether it's ultimately 
affecting decision makers or moving certain levers. Sometimes in government, you feel the exact opposite effect of that, that you have these levers that you're racing at a thousand miles an hour, but that you haven't had the chance to really step back and think about a question or an issue with a level of depth that you might have been used to before you entered government. I think it's part of the reason why those partnerships are so important, because different institutions and different individuals of those institutions are capable uh, in each their own way, sort of contributing to, to what you need on a certain challenge. From my approach, I will say working at, um, at the Development Finance Corporation at DSC has been a great way to integrate a lot of those different threads over time. You know, the DFC makes investments through the private sector around the world, but does so as a U.S. government agency with a dual mission of working to advance the foreign policy interests of the United States, but above all, making developmental investments in low-income countries. And that's uh, part of its mandate as directed by Congress when it was created a few years ago. And so that combination of being able to work on foreign policy challenges, to make developmental investments that are having a positive impact around the world, to do it through the private sector, uh, to do it in partnership with a range of stakeholders in the nonprofit community and in Congress, which has been a real supporter of this work. Bringing that all together has been, uh, has been a rare experience for me in my professional career and something that I've really valued. So for people who aren't familiar with the DFC, I think you gave a good overview of what it does. But I think what a lot of people might have missed is like, this is a, this is a new government agency. I mean, it builds on the work of OPIC and, and sort of other government entities, but it essentially is a new agency. So what is it like to help build a new agency? Like, what does that look like? Is it, is it like building a startup? Is it like something else? Like, well, t- take us through like what it was like to be in the room and on in some of those kind of early days. Well, you're exactly right, Zoe. The DFC is a very new agency. Congress created it, created the agency through the Build Act in 2018, but the agency itself didn't open its doors in 2019. As you noted, it wasn't created from whole cloth. It merged two different institutions and predecessors, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation and USAID's Development Credit Authority, which are the main components that came together. Um, And it redefined what the mission of that entity should be. DFC is a development finance institution. So what does that mean? As I mentioned, it has this mission to make developmental investments in low-income countries around the world. And it does that in every sector, pretty much every sector you can imagine, climate, energy, health, agriculture, closing the digital divide, empowering small businesses, especially those led by women, and many more. But it was also given a mandate to make investments that advance the foreign policy interests of the United States. That's what these highly developmental investments do just by their nature. Um, but it's also what other investments can do, like investing in and around Ukraine. And a really important element of this that I think has shaped a lot of the early days of the institution, to your question, is that those investments are made through private sector companies with the goal of crowding in additional private sector capital, not competing with it. Which means that at the end of the day, DFC is looking for commercially viable investments that might not otherwise close, where DFC can provide a missing ingredient, say, political risk insurance or a loan guarantee or some equity that helps the private sector come in to a project or a market where it might not otherwise have operated. That goal is really about supporting this broader mission of investing in long-term sustainable economic growth through market-driven activity. It's a goal that really operates sort of at a higher level than making return, which is something that its predecessor agencies had also had to factor in for budgetary reasons. And so when you bring all of it together, you realize that It's really an ambitious set of targets and a rare and sort of unique tool in the United States government system to advance our foreign policy interests abroad um, through deepening our economic partnerships with these countries. 
despite all of that and everything that I've mentioned, it's a very small agency, only a few hundred people. And it was even smaller in 2019. And so being a part of the team that is thinking through how to bring on additional talent, how to organize effectively to meet that mission, how to then go out into the world and make even more of these investments in, in these critical areas. It's a real challenge. It's sort of uh, like being at a startup in government. Like you said, I joked when I transitioned from the State Department to the DFC that I was moving from the oldest institution in government, foreign policy institution in government, the State Department, which has been around for 233 years, to the DFC, which it had been around at the time for three. And you feel that difference in a lot of ways. But I also think it creates a really exciting work environment where there's just enormous potential and enormous scope to make a difference. So let me pick a little bit at the dual mandate question, because there's often a a debate in development circles about, do you help the neediest first? Is the goal to bring the poorest out of poverty? Obviously, the combination of climate change and the war in Ukraine has driven hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people into poverty, into famine, and it's just not great out there in the world. And then on the other hand, you have things like China's Belt and Road, which we're competing with in a variety of ways, or just the idea of it's strategically wise, as you said, to invest in Ukraine, even if Ukraine is not the most crisis-ridden country at any given moment. How do you think about balancing those two missions? Well, it's an excellent question, and I think it speaks to just the scope and scale of challenges that we're facing as a global community today. I mean, this administration inherited really an unprecedented set of challenges from a raging pandemic at the time to the climate crisis to a growing digital divide and the rise of uh, of authoritarian countries. I mean, now we're facing, we're seeing many countries face a debt crisis, not to mention persistent and growing food insecurity following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, the list goes on and on and we're all fairly familiar with it. And so I think that that creates obviously a need as you mentioned, to focus on different elements of the mission. It also, I think, creates a real incentive to to push as fast as we can. One of the things that that has been really powerful for me in working at DFC is just seeing the degree of support for this kind of work of making development investments around the world in this climate. And I think that comes in part because in different ways and for different communities, we all realize the value of what these investments can do on each of the elements of the mission that you called out. So just a couple of weeks ago in the omnibus, Congress passed a $1 billion funding package for DFC. It's a significant increase in the agency's programmatic and administrative expenses that'll help it make a range of investments around the world and really up our ability uh, over time to make an impact on all the issues that you outlined. But even looking back on just this past year, there's, I think, been a real demonstration of the ability both for the U.S. government across the board and also for this agency to contribute in many ways and sort of walk and chew gum on all of the issues that you highlighted. And just to give you a couple examples, at COP27, DFC announced that it invested $2.3 billion over the last fiscal year, the 2022 fiscal year, in climate and climate-linked projects. Those are projects in every region. They touch on every dimension of the climate problem from clean energy to sustainable agriculture to climate adaptation, which is an especially important element of the challenge in developing countries. And it's more money than DFC, than, than DFC has ever invested in climate before. About a month later, our CEO visited Ukraine in December, where he announced DFC's first two investments there since the war began, financial support to a regional bank 
to support its continued lending to its clients and a technical assistance grant to Ukrainian Catholic University, a university that we had the chance to visit to help to continue to educate students through the war. At the Africa Leaders Summit in December, President Biden announced nearly $370 million in new projects from the DFC throughout continental Africa, including in funds investing in innovative businesses and healthcare and renewable energy. And that's part of a much larger annual sort of number of figure that, that we hope will continue to grow. And all of it has been part of a record-breaking year for the institution, which last year invested over $7.4 billion around the world. And that, I think, sort of speaks to the scope and scale of this tool. Congress in 2019, when they created the agency, wrote, uh, increased the cap, the exposure cap of the agency to $60 billion in total, which we're nowhere close to, to reaching at the moment. So I really do think there's a lot of opportunity here to hit on different elements of the mission at the same time, recognizing, obviously, that we can't predict how the world will evolve from here and where there will be opportunities to work with the private sector to advance our interests in each of those areas. I don't fully understand how this works, so would love if, if maybe you could share a little bit more. But I, as you know, Naz, I used to work at the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, which in some ways is sort of like a little bit of a, an equivalent org, as I understand it, but for at the at the multilateral level. And so for the IFC, both the shareholders of the IFC and sort of like the entities that the IFC was accountable to were all of the member states that, you know, sort of contribute to the pot, as it were. And for the DFC, like, are the taxpayers the shareholders? Is DFC accountable to Congress? Who does DFC really answer to here? And like, ultimately, if we're going to use the shareholder analogy, do you think from a theoretical level that like the American people or taxpayers, etc., should have any sort of like influence or say in how these funds are used? Like to what extent does that like metaphor work or does it is, or does it completely break down because it's not, this isn't, you know, this isn't an IPO company. This isn't the private sector. Well, it's, it's, I think speaks to the newness of this agency and finding a way uh, to get its message out there. So I'm very happy to answer it. Ultimately there's kind of two, I think elements of the analogy that are most salient. So Congress, of course, created the agency. And as a U.S. federal agency, um, it has its funding and, and its mission and mandate are directed by the Congress. It also has a board, like some of our other development agencies in the U.S. government that's chaired by the State Department. And the U.S. Agency for International Development sits on that board, as does the Commerce Department, the Treasury Department, and a few other board members. And so that's another element of accountability. And of course, uh, in its day-to-day -day management, its senior leadership, uh, in many cases appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, in other cases, senior career officials or other presidential appointees sort of manage the agency day-to-day. -day -day. And so through those different layers, you have a number of different avenues to influence the trajectory of the agency over time. And that's, that's really the anchor for the work. I mean, the Build Act in 2019 uh, that I've referenced a couple times, you can probably tell is really a guiding light for the agency. But uh, it partners actively with other agencies in the government, uh, the White House, of course, with other stakeholder groups in the development community and the strategic community, of course, with our colleagues in Congress. I mean, really is it does feel like a big team because there are a lot of folks who are interested in finding a way to make this a, a powerful and effective tool and to keep really building that tool for the government over time. I know that one of the things that government is 
really good at is putting a bunch of people in the room, really layering on a bunch of administrative procedures to make sure not a dollar is spent out of place. And that is especially so when that money is going to foreign entities. So how do you make sure that DFC is being the most effective it can be while also being responsible to all those stakeholders you're talking about? It's a great question. And there's a whole range of ways to do it. I mean, one of the real sort of guiding lights of the work is making sure that it's having a development impact throughout the world in whatever sort of context or instance. There's, as I mentioned earlier, also this North Star of making sure that that money is additional, that it's crowding in private sector capital. And so each of those different elements factors into the equation on a deal. To get more tactical about it, if that's interesting, uh, to get into more depth on Each transaction is held to the IFC's performance standards. There's a range of know your client checks that are done, due diligence that is done on the recipient of of the funding or the financing, I should say. Those investments, those transactions are monitored thereafter. And so there there really is a significant degree of emphasis placed in the run-up to committing an investment and ultimately closing on that investment and, and thereafter to ensure that the funds are being used in a way that furthers that mission, the mission we talked about earlier, the development element of it, and also advancing the interest of, of the United States more broadly. A little earlier, Grant mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative, and I think lots of people are familiar with the BRI and the ways in which China has used it as a political tool. To what extent is the DFC the U.S. equivalent of the BRI, and in what ways is it totally different in terms of strategy approach? end goals, et cetera? Well, the way I think about it is that what we're trying to do as a country, and that's through the DFC and through other agencies and the government, is really offer an alternative, a high standards, respectful, sustainable alternative to investments throughout the world. And I think that has, has a whole series of ripple effects that you can see and feel when you're participating in this work. And I give you a specific example of that. We traveled in June to Georgia, and as part of that visit with our CEO, visited the American Hospital in Tbilisi, which is a DFC finance project. The agency had participated; its predecessor agency had participated in financing the construction of the hospital, and and then DFC helped provide additional technical assistance in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine to provide additional assistance to Ukrainian refugees who were who were fleeing to Georgia, and. In walking around the facility, I mean, for your first sort of impression is just the state of the art element. I mean, it was an incredible facility on its own right. The healthcare providers themselves were highly trained and international. Uh, and in doing, in sort of building that facility and bringing that program online, you realize that it not only provides healthcare uh, in Georgia, it sets a, it sort of creates a home for Georgians to come and receive best in class care, but it also sets a standard for an entire region on what a healthcare facility could look like. That's the visible element of it. Behind the scenes, all of the work that took place to go through the financial checks to make sure the business plan was in place, sort of operating and building the facility in line with international best practices, I think really set a tone for a sector more broadly. I mean, it's something we heard repeatedly across the country as we were having conversations, not just in the healthcare sector, but in the financial services sector or the hospitality sector, that an investment from the United States that is held, you know, to what we were mentioning before, that alternative, sustainable, 
respectful, not burdensome, high standards, changes markets. It helps create a culture of operation that really brings entire economies into you know, that sort of class. And I, it felt uh, you could feel that viscerally walking through the hospital, but also hearing those stories, I think, helped bring that out. And, and you know, when we talk about sort of more broadly to your question, Zoe, on, on the Belt and Road, that's sort of how I think about the role of DFC, of the Partnership for Global Infrastructure Investment and these other initiatives in the government to offer investment abroad. It's really about a different way of doing things. And I hope and, and believe deeply a, a more sustainable way of doing things over time. One of the things that I find really interesting about foreign policy is that everyone I know that got into this space was interested in foreign policy for some of that, the big stuff we talked about at the beginning, 9-11, my family's from abroad, I went on this trip and I fell in love with Italy or whatever it was, but that most jobs in foreign policy are not, you know, ambassador to China. Most jobs are much smaller blocking and tackling of foreign policy. And I think this intersection of finance and foreign policy is something that doesn't get taught often in colleges and universities and doesn't really see a lot of conversation, even in the think tank space, which is, you know, what think tanks are supposed to be for. So how do you think about the intersection just between finance and foreign policy? And what would you sort of say to foreign policy nerds who want to get into this space or want to think about? how they can more effectively impact at that intersection? Well, you know, I I view it as less of an intersection and more an integration in the sense that our foreign policy and the issues and challenges we face have grown and evolved so much over the past 20, 30, 40 years that it's hard to disaggregate the economic element of it from the broader sort of geopolitical context on almost any bilateral relationship or global issue. You know, in my time at the State Department, where I was focused more on on some of the political and security dynamics or elements of individual relationships, you almost always realize that in these settings, what countries are actually asking us for, not always, but in, in many instances, is economic support or linked to economic support. And so economic statecraft, foreign policy, domestic policy, domestic economic policy, I mean, those lines are increasingly blurred. And I think that's something that has received a lot of attention in the, in the global debate uh, and in the American foreign policy debate over the past five to 10 years, as we've sort of seen the effects of that play out, whether it's in our relationship with China, whether it's in our relationship with our allies and partners around the world. I mean, the economic element of that is really, I think, coming to the fore. And so from my perspective, I would just say, um, you know, to anyone who's interested in foreign policy, there's a lot of different dimensions to that that we might not have considered to be as traditionally foreign policy issues in the past, whether that is economic, whether that's understanding the science of climate change or understanding the science of a pandemic. Uh, I think many of us really felt like we were coming up to speed in the first few months of the pandemic on the basics of how diseases work, how pandemics work. But now it's hard to imagine crafting a pandemic security strategy without that sort of understanding. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that ultimately there are a lot of different types of expertise and exposure that are needed to solve these problems. No one person, of course, can be the holder of all of those. It's why teams are so important. But I do think for anyone who's interested in these issues, having a baseline level of fluency in those different elements is a real advantage because it helps you speak the language. It helps you understand the at least sort of fundamental principles behind different components of our, of our foreign policy strategy, which, again, as I said, I think really are so interwoven now that it's hard to disaggregate but that we still need to organize in some way. 
and effectively resource to, to move out against. You have been doing a lot of travel in this new role and also, I guess, in your last role. What is a place that you visited in the last year or so that was particularly exciting, impactful, you know, has stuck with you? And where is some place that you haven't been yet that you're excited to go, maybe in 2023? In terms of impact, for me, I think it would be hard to imagine something being more impactful than visiting Ukraine during this crisis. We, our CEO was there uh, in early December, as I referenced briefly earlier, and accompanying him on that visit, meeting with business leaders who had been affected by the war, meeting with students, meeting with, with local officials, with government officials, seeing their resilience, seeing their belief in the future for their country, the work that they're doing today to invest in that future, and the work they're doing to support each other and their communities. I mean, it really sort of blows you away. And participating in, in those conversations, being able to contribute in a very small way was really just an honor. It's one of those experiences you'll, you'll take with you for the rest of life. And so I think that was by far the, um, the trip that left the deepest impression on me personally. Next year, there's so many different places we're hoping to go and to travel. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time in the Indo-Pacific in my prior role. I haven't had the chance to go to East Asia in this role yet uh, in some capacity. I have visited a couple other countries nearby, but I think that would be what I would be most excited for. There's so much work, good work that we can be doing in Southeast Asia and around the region. And so I'm hopeful we'll have the chance to do that sometime in 2023. With that, let's go to our final segment where we each talk about something we're following in the news, either culturally or politically. Naz, why don't you kick us off? Every year around this time, I start paying closer attention to the news coming out of Australia, not the political news, but the sports news, uh, because the Australian Open kicks off the tennis season uh, and the Grand Slam season in January. This year, it's starting on January 16th. And while there are, you know, some familiar players and some familiar news stories this year, like Novak Djokovic being admitted back into Australia after his famous deportation last year when he refused to comply with Australia's COVID procedures, or Rafael Nadal being healthy and ready to go, or Venus Williams incredibly earning a wildcard spot at the tournament, what I can't get over and what I'm following is that this will be the first Grand Slam in 20, nearly 25 years where neither of the two greatest players of all time, in my opinion, will be active tennis players. Serena Williams and Roger Federer both retired in the fall of 2022. Serena at the U.S. Open and Roger is sort of in a beautiful moment with Rafael Nadal at the Labor Cup. We grew up in a golden era of tennis in many respects. Um, our generation got to see over 20 years of Serena, of Venus, of Roger, of Rafa, of Novak, those rivalries and those uh, memories, I think, um, really represent a high point for the sport. And I think it's fitting in some ways that this Australian Open will be the first time that two of those five greats and uh, won't be there. Um, you know, Roger won his last Grand Slam in 2017 at the Australian Open and arguably the greatest tennis match of all time against Rafa Nadal in a five-set thriller. And that same year, Serena won the tournament over her sister Venus in the final. And so it's going to be a very a different tournament this year. It's the beginning of the end of an era. I don't know how many more matches we'll get to see of these greats, but I'll be watching all the same. And I'm looking forward to that in the next week. Zoe, what are you following this week? 
I want to talk about a sort of interesting tidbit that I learned in the last week, which is that the Oxford English Dictionary has selected their word of 2022, which is goblin mode, which isn't a single word. I guess it's a phrase, but the term goblin mode means behavior that is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly, or greedy. And I guess the term first appeared quite a while ago, back in 2009, but went viral over the last year with some celebrities getting involved in one way or another and has really taken off. So I have to admit, it might be more of a UK term than in the US because I had not heard of Goblin Mode, but it certainly is going to enter my personal dictionary now. I believe the Merriam-Webster's word of the year for 2022 was gaslighting. Um, So a term that got a lot of play and attention over the last year or so. So would recommend looking out for the word of the year. Quite interesting. Says I think a lot about the moment we're in and would encourage everybody to start using the phrase goblin mode. This week, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the coup attempt in Brazil. Anyone who's been following Jair Bolsonaro's political career could have seen this coming a mile away. Former Brazilian President Bolsonaro has been pro-coup for a long time. He said positive things about the military dictatorship in Brazil and has cast aspersions on the election system in Brazil because of their use of electronic voting machines. That's to say nothing of the disinformation that has spread around Brazil over social media like wildfire. We, of course, condemn the violence and support the democratic process in Brazil that led to the election of Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who just took office a few days ago. But for me, there's still a hugely pressing question open as to how the United States, Europe, and other democratic allies can support democracies beyond platitudes. We have to find ways to keep democracies from moving towards authoritarianism, and this is a great example of why. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's NextGen initiative and is a proud member of the DSR network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Nas at Nas El Katib. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is sponsored by Florida and their brand new marketing slogan, Summer Home for Wannabe Authoritarians. If you fomented a coup against your own democracy and want to live in a place that has mosquitoes year-round, come to Florida. We won't ask any hard questions. And once your residence officially changes, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.